2: As they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. One of the things we
4: enjoy the most uh, that we do over on Patreon with the Inner Circle of Freaks, or the actually the Order of Freaks, is we donate 10% of all of our Patreon revenue to a charity, and we let the uh, Order of Freaks decide what charity gets the money.
0: Yeah, and we just wrapped up our last philanthropy poll, and I am <laughs> thrilled to say that because of our patrons this year, uh, we were able to allocate over $2,500 dollars to various charities and it's just so wonderful to see like the variety of charities that we've been able to support because of your votes
4: and you're going to be posting the uh, information coming up right yes okay A lot of fun things happen with the uh, Order of Freaks. Not only do we uh, get to join forces and uh, support good causes around the country, but we have some amazing conversations on the back channel.
0: Well, not just around the country, around the world. Around the world, yeah. yeah. And bats. Sorry, that was October's charity. It was, it was Bats. <laughs> well, it's so appropriate. I'm very excited about that. Anyway, what were you saying? <laughs> um,
4: I'm just inviting people to join us.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, please do. Thank you so much for your support and uh, for helping us support some incredible organizations. Uh, it's really all because of you.
4: If you want to become a member of the Order of Freaks on Patreon, just go to theboxofoddities.com, click on the support this podcast link, and it'll fix you right up, bub.
0: What you got for me today?
4: Oh, you're going to like this. I'm going to talk about sending messages into the future.
0: Oh, okay.
4: According to nrc.gov, radioactive isotopes eventually decay or disintegrate to harmless materials. Some decay pretty quickly, like in hours or even minutes, but others decay more slowly. Uh, For example... Strontium-90 and uh, cesium-137 have half-lives of about 30 years. And that means that half of their radioactivity will decay within 30 years. Mm -hmm. But plutonium-239 has a half-life of 24,000 years. Whoa. Clearly, there are some systems in place to dispose of uh, this dangerous and highly toxic material. And uh, society has gone as far, well, they've gone to pretty great lengths to isolate the population from exposure to it. And most of the dangerous radioactive material, the really highly radioactive material, comes from spent fuel rods at uh, power plants. And storage of used fuel is normally underwater for about five years, according to worldnuclear.org. And then it's often stored in what's known as deep geological disposal. It's widely agreed that this is the best solution for final disposal of radioactive waste that is produced. As you can imagine, these disposal sites are pretty clearly marked. Uh, They're also (laughs) (laughs) isolated and guarded. It's pretty much next to impossible to just, oh, accidentally stumble upon a deep geological disposal site full of radioactive material. And that's good for us today. But if the half-life of uh, plutonium-239 is 24,000 years, how do we keep our distant descendants from accidentally stumbling upon it, say, in 10,000 years or so? How do we pass the message along to the distant future to keep people safe?
0: I think the old skull and crossbones sends
4: a message. (laughs) Yeah, you know what? That's uh, actually a pretty good idea. (laughs) We'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, We've struggled with this type of question before in society. How do we pass on information that we have to our uh, descendants in order to keep them safe? Well, in Japan in 1896, there was an earthquake and subsequently a huge tsunami. In fact, There were actually two tsunamis that killed about 22,000 people. Oh, jeez! Those who survived it wanted to warn future generations of the dangers of living in that area. So what they did, and again, 1896, they erected a series of monuments that are now known as the Tsunami Stones, and they dot Japan's coastline. They're about 10 feet tall. They're tablet-shaped. And they have dire warnings carved into them by those who survived the 1896 disaster. On them, they say, quote, High dwellings are the peace and harmony of our descendants. Remember the calamity of the great tsunamis. Do not build any homes below this point. In an article in the New York Times that I found written by Martin Fackler, he quotes Itoko Katahari, an historian, of natural disasters at a leading university in Kyoto is saying, quote, the tsunami stones were designed to carry warnings across many generations, telling descendants to avoid the same suffering of their ancestors.
0: That's really smart.
4: It is, but passing along information for a hundred years into the future is far easier than the task of trying to warn our distant descendants 10 or perhaps 20,000 years from now.
0: I mean, do you think Think that that's gonna be necessary. <laughs> well,
4: let's be optimistic and, and say yes, all right. There will be some sort some form of human life.
0: Is that optimism? <laughs> well,
4: I guess that is open for debate. <laughs> there are some theories and plans in place that are under development to do just that, pass along information, uh, make it last 10, 20,000 years from now. And when you project that time frame backwards. We don't even really know what was going on 10,000 years ago. Right. Uh, Egyptian history goes back 5,000, 6,000 years maybe. Maybe that's what they were trying to do with the pyramids. Warn us that pyramid shapes are pokey and dangerous.
0: They could be if you fall on one wrong.
4: The organization that is tasked with doing this is called the Human Interference Task Force. And they've been working on longtime nuclear waste warning messages, or what is known as nuclear semiotics. They've been doing this since 1981.
0: The solid work of the HIT. I applaud them.
4: According to Wikipedia, a 1993 report from Sandia National Laboratories recommended that such messages be constructed at several levels of complexity. The sites should include foreboding physical features that would immediately convey to future visitors that the site was both man-made and dangerous, as well as providing pictographic information attempting to convey some of the details of the danger and also some written explanations. And here is the message that they constructed to be included as part of this futuristic warning system. Quote, This place is a message and part of a system of messages. Pay attention to it. Sending this message was important to us. We considered ourselves to be a powerful culture. This place is not a place of honor. No highly esteemed deed is commemorated here. Nothing valued is here. What is here was dangerous and repulsive to us. This message is a warning about danger. The danger is in a particular location. It increases toward the center. The center of danger is here, of a particular size and shape and below us. The danger is still present in your time, as it was in ours. The danger is to the body, and it can kill. The form of the danger is... Is an emanation of energy. The danger is unleashed only if you substantially disturb this place physically.
0: Gosh, that sounds so much like the curses in the <laughs> Egyptian tombs.
4: Uh-huh. You know? Uh, that's exactly what I thought, too. It goes on to say this place is best shunned and left uninhabited. The Sandia report also recommended that such messages should comprise four levels of increasing complexity. Level one should be rudimentary information, something uh, man-made is here, for example. Uh, Level two should be a cautionary information, something man-made is here and is dangerous. Level three should be basic information, tells what, when, where, why, how. And level four should be more complex information, highly detailed written records, tables, figures, graphs, maps, and diagrams. The text of the written messages are to be left in English, French, Spanish, Chinese, Arabic, Russian and Navajo and there are plans to continue testing and revising of the original English text and and continue to translate Into further languages.
0: It's really impressive, though, how, I mean, first of all, they use the word danger a lot, and I'm sure that's intentional to, you know, Mm -hmm. keep, you know, in case some of it gets worn away, we want the word danger to still be present. Um, But if I were to do it, it would say something like, no touchy, much (laughs) danger.
4: (laughs) And probably your method would be far more successful. It's also been proposed that extensive research and development be made into pictorial messages to warn future generations because it's pretty unlikely that today's written language will survive 10,000 years. And the research team has considered both pictograms as well as what they call uh, hostile architecture. Uh, Not sure how effective that will be, at least the pictograms. You know that international uh, radiation symbol? Yeah. The trefoil around a small uh, central circle? That first appeared in 1946. And back then, everybody knew what that symbol meant, reaching a peak at the height of the Cold War. But today only 6% of the human population understands what that sign means. Oh, wow. That blew my mind.
0: Well, I guess if it's not relevant to you, then why, yeah. you know?
4: I remember growing up, there being those signs on uh, what they considered to be fallout shelters. Yeah. During the Cold War, when I was really young, they were still doing the duck and cover. Right. <laughs> exercises in school, like an You're atomic so- an atomic bomb is going to go off nearby and uh, but you're okay. just scooch over there and cover your head with a book.
0: Your social studies desk will suffice.
4: There have been a couple of pretty cool concept designs for the waste isolation pilot plant. One of the ideas is to construct an information center at the geometric center of the site now this is this is cool. It's been proposed that the building be designed and built in such a way as to create a distinctive whistling sound when the wind blows through it to draw attention to itself.
0: Oh, kind of like those little caps that you can put on the front of your car to scare deer.
4: Which really is counterproductive because it often scares deer into the road and causes more harm than good. Mm. But it reminded me a lot of like, say, Stonehenge and some of these old monoliths that are lined up so that the soul to sunrise will go right right between the the center. Those types of things. Plans are also underway to make physical markers, and they want to make these things just instinctively seem dangerous and and repulsive. One of the designs suggested is a landscape of thorns, perhaps a spike field, spikes bursting through a grid, menacing earthworks. Holes. Holes. They even thought about uh, covering the whole site with black asphalt so that it would make it essentially uninhabitable. You can't plant anything there. Right.
0: My dumbass would be like, hey, there's a pad here.
4: I'm going to build a basketball court. Let's put tennis courts in. And then there's this fascinating idea. A linguist by the name of Thomas Sibiak is working as part of the Human Interference Task Force. And he suggests we should create what he refers to as an atomic priesthood.
0: What's that? Oh, like a... Um... Knights of the Templar kind of thing?
4: Kind of, yeah. It would be a panel of experts, in his mind, comparable to the Catholic Church, which has preserved and authorized its message for almost 2,000 years. Right. The priesthood would be responsible for preserving the knowledge of radioactive waste locations and the dangers through rituals and myths.
0: I love that.
4: That is fascinating. Another proposed idea, this one's really out there, um, French author François Bastide, along with the Italian nuclear semiotician Pablo Fabri, is suggesting to take domestic cats and genetically engineer them. Oh, geez. So that their color changes in the presence of dangerous levels of radiation. They would be known as radiation cats or ray cats. For short, which sounds like a minor league baseball team. And uh, the significance would be reinforced through fairy tales and myths and stories about how one should move away from sites where these creatures change color. Whenever you encounter a domestic cat and it begins to exhibit a changing of color, get the hell out.
0: I love that we have this understanding that our language probably will not survive. A lot of structures will not be here. Maybe the information that we've accumulated won't survive, but cats will.
4: Cats and high levels of radioactive waste. In 2014, a musician named Emperor X wrote a song called Don't Change Color, Kitty. The idea was to design a song that was so catchy, so annoying, That it would be handed down from generation to generation over the span of 10,000 years. Like it's a small
0: world? (laughs) Yeah, exactly
4: like that. It's exactly right. The idea was create this earworm that'll just piss people off for about 10 millennia. And I think he succeeded.
3: Don't change color, could you keep your color, could you stay that pretty gray? Don't change color, could you keep your color, could you keep sickness away? Don't change color, kitty. keep your color, kitty, please, because if you do glow your luminescent eyes, you're all going to have to move. That sounds like
0: color. Simon and Garfunkel.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and and I guarantee you that's it's going to be stuck in your head for the rest of the day. It's,
0: yeah, it's very baby shark.
4: Yeah, I would. Uh, I should have put an earworm trigger warning at the beginning of that. <laughs> Will any of these warning systems survive to the point where their dire messages are passed down for ten or twenty thousand years? And if so, how would our distant futuristic descendants interpret that information? You mentioned uh, it. It reminded you of the ancient Pharaoh curse. Would they scoff at the warning, thinking that it was some sort of primitive curse, mm-hmm. to keep them away from an ancient buried treasure, and they just dig it up anyway? Yep. Would they? Would they listen? To the warnings nah. let's go back to the tsunami stones in japan yeah according to an article in smithsonian not only did the survivors of the 1896 tsunami event put up 10 foot tall warning stones all along the coastline but they even changed the names of some of the locations in an attempt to pass the information along there are places there named uh the valley of the survivors there's another place called waves edge It's been said it only takes humans about three generations to forget.
0: Wow.
4: It's a memory for you, your children, and your grandchildren. But by the time you get to your great-grandchildren, the memory starts to fade. That's according to Fumihiko Imamori. He's a professor of disaster planning at uh, Tohoku University. The warnings left by the survivors of the 1896 tsunami were not heeded. Coastal (sighs) towns boomed until 2011 rolled around bringing with it a giant earthquake followed by that massive tsunami wave mm. some people a few did heed the markers according to a 12 year old in a 2011 ap article he said quote everybody knows about the markers we studied them in school and when the tsunami came my mom got me from school and the whole village climbed to higher ground they knew where they were supposed to go but unfortunately Most didn't do that. Most didn't pay attention. The earthquake occurred at 2.46 p.m. local time on March 11th. It was huge, if you remember. It was a magnitude 9 to 9.1 undersea megathrust. It lasted for about six minutes, and then the tsunami hit. The total number of deaths was about 20,000 people. Wow. Let's hope that our warnings do survive over the next 10 or 20,000 years. I can't say I'm hopeful, but uh, let's try to hope that those who discover them understand the gravity and heed the warnings. My information came from Smithsonian Magazine, Wikipedia, the BBC, the Associated Press, the New York Times. And the topic itself was suggested by one of our listeners, Catherine who, according to her byline, is an author as well as a professor of library public services, Emeritus.
0: Wow. Thanks, Catherine.
4: And now,
2: that thing in the middle.
4: Hey, did you know graham crackers were invented to keep people from having sex? The guy behind them was Reverend Sylvester Graham. He was a Presbyterian minister who became obsessed with healthy living, and the idea that sexual desire was sinful and could cause physical ailments. There's no evidence that graham crackers deter sexual desires. Although I must admit that I don't feel very sexy after eating a plate of s'mores.
2: Guess what I'm holding in my hand, and I'll give it to you. This is the Box of Oddities.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
2: with Kat and Jethro Gilligan Toth.
4: Kelsey sent us an email, curator at the box of oddities.com. Hey, Kat and Jethro, I know you two are constantly hearing how amazing you are. Yeah, but we never grow tired of it. <laughs> And I just wanted to reaffirm that with an anecdote. Right before Thanksgiving, I went on a trip to Orlando, and at one point, we were driving down to Tampa, and we started to pass this red pickup truck with main license plates. Immediately, my mind became convinced it was you guys, and I found myself nose-pressed to the window, waiting to see if I could catch a glimpse of you. Sometime before we pulled up enough to see the actual driver, my basic social etiquette clicked into place, and I thought, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> These people don't know you. It obviously wasn't you unless Jethro grew a long mullet recently. Oh, uh. <laughs> At that point, I thought about sending an email, I don't do the social medias, apologizing for accidentally on purpose stalking you, uh, but clearly I never <laughs> did. So here it is. I'm really sorry I made that weird. <laughs> um, okay, fine.
0: It was weird for that guy, not us. Yeah,
4: not, not us. We don't care. Um, I've never owned a red pickup, but I have had a mullet. Have yeah. we, ever, we ever posted that picture of my 1980s uh, permed hair mullet?
0: I think we have. Really? Yeah. Do, yeah. You, do you feel like it's time to <laughs> share that again?
4: I looked a lot like 80s pop sensation Richard Marks during that time frame. Mm. Or my hair did anyway. Or perhaps a barn owl had died on my head. <laughs> I've heard it described both ways. <clears throat>
3: Don't change color, could keep your color,
4: could you stay that pretty gray? Oh god. Is
3: that
0: the new what you got for me? <laughs>
4: <laughs> um what you got for me. Alright.
0: The Congo River Basin. It's 500 million acres. It's larger than the state of Alaska, and it's home to the world's second largest tropical forest. Contains rivers, forests, savannas, swamps, and flooded forests. The Congo Basin is teeming with life. Many of these creatures that live here are endemic to the region and rarely spotted. So could one of these animals be a dinosaur?
4: Is this a cryptid story? You know it is. Oh my god. You're finally starting to see the light.
0: Oh, yeah. Um. So the end of this might bum you out a little oh,
4: bit. Oh, geez. Thanks for ruining it in advance. You're
0: the one who ruined it.
4: Bigfoot's real.
0: Mokele Mbembe is a water-dwelling entity that supposedly lives in the Congo River Basin. He's said to be an elephant-sized water beast, a long-necked, long-tailed herbivore that lurks in deep forested swamps, and forest-fringed lakes. I heard
4: about something something like this. Is this the one they think, if it exists, um, which clearly it does, is a descendant of dinosaurs or maybe a surviving uh, type of dinosaur?
0: I've already said that they think he's a dinosaur.
4: Did you say that? Were you
0: listening at all?
4: I was busy arguing in my head about Bigfoot being real. Loch Ness is real, too. <laughs> well, at least the Loch is.
0: Neil brought this topic up on Facebook, so big thanks to Neil. Um, Really enjoyed learning about this fella.
4: Neil, on the other hand, doesn't exist.
0: Rumors of enormous beasts hidden in the Congo region date back to at least the 16th century. Based upon descriptions provided, this creature resembles a sauropod dinosaur. He's a large quadruped with a smooth skin and a long neck and a single tooth, sometimes described as a horn in the front.
4: Like in his mouth or on his snout?
0: Snouty, snouty okay. times. But it's hard to say because we don't get a lot of good looks at this creature that doesn't exist. Now, Says
4: you. They didn't think giraffes were real until the 19th century.
0: No, it's true. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of people in this region who talk about Mokele and Bembe as though he is real. And so, you know, I mean no disrespect when when I talk about your cultural stories and I and I say that, you know, I'm just I tend to be more skeptical and I like to see you know, a clear photograph.
4: Right. And and you're a white middle-class woman in the U.S.
0: Right. So I've been exposed to very little (laughs) other than the delightful sweet treats of your land. I don't know much about the countries that you all are from, but I know your desserts. Yeah.
4: She's a big fan of your cuisine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm here to learn. That's all I'm saying. In 1909, a German big game hunter, named Carl Hagenbach mentioned in his autobiography that he'd been told by a naturalist about some kind of dinosaur, uh, seemingly akin to Brontosaurus, and he claimed to have heard from two independent sources about a creature living in this area that was described by natives as half-elephant, half-dragon. Naturalist Joseph Menges had also told Hagenbach about similar stories, and it was speculated it can only be some kind of dinosaur. Now, keep in mind that in the early 20th century, there was a bit of a dinosaur craze.
4: Oh, sure, they had just fairly recently discovered. Dinosaur bones.
0: Yeah, in the uh, western interior of the U.S. in the late 1800s, it was a huge discovery. Actually,
4: let me correct myself. They had discovered dinosaur bones long before that, but they often would uh, associate those bones with the myths of dragons.
0: Or giants. Or giants. So this dinosaur craze is sweeping the globe And Hagenbeck was a bit of a showman, kind of a P.T. Barnum type. So he's feeding off the dino craze and also feeding into that false stereotyping view of Africa as somehow being more prehistoric than the rest of the world. Okay, Okay. And based on Hagenbeck's tales, a Washington Post story from 1910 had the headline, Brontosaurus still lives.
4: The Post? Yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah. I mean, we were... We were jazzed about dinosaurs (laughs) at this time. It didn't take much. In their book, Cryptozoology A to Z, Lauren Coleman and Jerome Clark note numerous expeditions have been mounted in search of Mokele Mbembe, In 1980, in 1981, monster hunter and retired University of Chicago biologist Roy Mackle headed explorations into the regions of the Congo reputed to be the hotspots of dinosaur sightings. Now, the answer is no. They did not find any (laughs) evidence that dinosaurs were chilling in the Congo.
4: I, I can really see how that would have captivated the imaginations, though of the population at the time of
0: course and like you said there have been multiple instances where we thought that a certain animal was a legend and it turns out it's a real thing platypus okapi giraffes that fish that i always fuck up its name
4: the coelocanth
0: yep that guy yeah Colelinth.
4: They knew that as ex- is, is far as is the seacanth or the canith. they did believe that it was real, but they thought it had been extinct for 200 million years or something like that. Oh
0: my God, do you want me on this podcast or should I just leave?
3: Don't change color, can you keep your color, can you stay that pretty gray?
0: <sighs> Every
4: time you say that, I'm going to play that song.
0: So... Um, He did, though, on his journeys, gather more native stories and legends about it. It seems like a lot of what we know about who I'm going to call Moem Bem from now on, because it's cute. (laughs) A lot of the African tribes refer to him as a ghost rather than an actual living animal or a spirit or Somehow being connected spiritually with them as a people rather than actually tootling about in the forest. Thousands of years ago, this region of Africa may well have been inhabited by other animals that created this kind of folk memory of beasts described by older generations that, you know, made their way into a dinosaur story. They should have written a song about it. Absolutely. But it's not just the older generations who report sightings. A man told the BBC not long ago, I was in a boat on the river when I saw Mokele Mbembe. He began to chase us. He rose up out of the water and we ran or he would have killed us. In 1776, in the history of Loango, Katonga and other kingdoms in Africa, there's a story about a group of French missionaries who had found the tracks of an enormous unknown animal in the jungle. The translation published in 1914 reads it must be monstrous the prints of its claws are seen upon the earth and formed an impression on it about three feet in circumference mm. in observing the posture and disposition of the footprints they concluded that it did not run this part of the way and that it carried its claws at a distance of seven or eight feet Holy shit. from one another so that's a big boy
4: that is of good size
0: To date, there have been more than 50 expeditions to the region searching for Mokele Mbembe, but no scientific evidence unless you include that French missionary's footprint. Interestingly, expeditions are most often led by young Earth creationists and other groups with the objective to find evidence that invalidates evolution. (laughs) Okay, we all need a hobby. Paleontologist Donald Prothero remarks, the quest for Mokele Mbembe is part of the effort by creationists to overthrow the theory of evolution and teaching of science by any means possible. Additionally, he said, the only people looking for Mokele Mbembe are creationist ministers, not wildlife biologists.
4: Hmm, that's interesting. Which
0: is an interesting kind of Mm. tangent to this story.
4: They're saying that if they find this, Mm -hmm. then that means that dinosaurs could still exist and that means that those bones that they found could have been relatively recent, like over the last few thousand years as opposed to 200 million years.
0: I didn't see and I don't understand how this guy existing would invalidate yeah, evolution because so I don't know.
4: There's still uh, like radiocarbon dating and things like it It it, it doesn't disprove that No, nope. it just suggests that maybe some Descendants of dinosaurs uh, that look like them do survive that we haven't discovered yet. Obviously, birds are are descendants, right. so you know that, that doesn't disprove evolution.
0: Anyway, there are, as we said, those creatures out there that we thought were myth that turned out to be real. And the Congolese government officials do say that about 80 percent of this region is uncharted. Eighty percent. So who knows what's Mm. out there but it's uh you know
4: yeah probably not probably no i i I love that idea and i love the idea that there are there are groups of people who live in these isolated areas that have minimal contact Mm -hmm. with uh, modern society and probably that suggests that there are some still out there that have no friggin idea of what modern society is because they have never had an, an encounter with with us. And to me, it makes me more hopeful when I hear that that there are still good people in the world. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, those who have not encountered an internet comment section, yeah. you know, who still have purity in their heart. Exactly.
4: <laughs> you, you, that reminds me, you show me that TikTok of uh those two dogs, they were separated by a gate and they're like baring their teeth and very menacingly growling at each other like they're <laughs> going to rip each other's throats out. And then the guy opens the gate and they just start like shrinking in size and licking the other one's face like, hey, I'm, I'm your, your friend now. <laughs> and that reminds me of people who write nasty comments on the interweb. <laughs> Once you remove that gate that we call a computer screen,
0: right? <laughs> All, <laughs> All of, of sudden, a sudden,
4: <laughs> they're not so bold anymore. Right.
0: I got most of my information from ThoughtCo, from Live Science, Scientific American, and of course, Wikipedia.
4: That's great stuff, sweetie. Thank you. This is episode 397. Wow, wow. We've done 397 episodes, and that means that this month, I think on the 20th. We we decided that's the day. Yep,
0: the 20th we will drop our 400th episode. So we're
4: trying to think of something special to do. I
0: think we should do stories about Spartans wait wouldn't
4: that be 300 though god damn it oh well good thought anyway maybe you guys can come up with some ideas of something special that we could do uh, for our 400th anniversary yeah we want to celebrate 400th anniversary <laughs> 400th
0: episode Jeez. sometimes I feel like I'm 400 <laughs> either way you know what we're saying yeah. and also thank you because if it weren't for you guys um, and I'm trying to say guys less um, if it weren't for you all we wouldn't be doing this and uh, we appreciate you so so Much.
4: And we look forward to seeing you next time.
0: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
2: Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. (laughs) And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. The box of on Facebook at facebook.com slash box of oddities podcast on Twitter at box of oddities and Instagram at box of oddities podcast. Copyright 2022. All
3: rights reserved. Don't change color, kitty, keep your color, kitty, stay that pretty gray. Don't change color, kitty, keep your color, kitty, keep sickness away. Don't change color, kitty, keep your color, kitty, please. Cause if you do, or glow your luminescent eyes. you all gonna have to move. Don't change color, kitty, keep your color, kitty, stay that pretty gold. Don't change
4: Find historical blindness on most podcast players and platforms.
2: Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here.
1: And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you
4: syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.